Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Contemplating Continuity, A Conversation with Spiritual Friends, and was given by Barbara Dubois on May 15, 2021, via Zoom, and with a few friends physically attending. Barbara is a longtime practitioner, teacher of Buddha Dharma, and friend of many on the Western Vowel Path. She is author of Light Years, A Spiritual Memoir, and Brave, Generous, and Undefended, Heart Teachings on the 37 Bodhisattva Practices. The talk begins after reference is made to her root lamas, His Holiness Dujam Rinpoche and His Eminence Garshan Rinpoche. Barbara Dubois. I like the part where you say the names of my gurus and then you say, enough said. That's great. <laughs> That's a very good intro. Everyone, I'm really happy to be here. This is a, a, a serious adventure, a joyous adventure for me. A lot of you have been during the pandemic in and out a lot, working and helping people and so on. And I have not. Uh, I am. This is my second time out. Basically, I've gone out for a few medical appointments and stuff, but I haven't gone out to do anything or see anybody and uh, have not been engaging in any kind of normal activity for all this time. So it's kind of challenging. And also, in a funny way, it's so normalizing. I mean, it, it is, after all, what we're used to in the, from the before times. So it's so normalizing that I feel as if in some way it's kind of erasing the experience of the last year in some ways, as if it didn't happen, which is an odd sensation. But it's apropos of our topic, which is contemplating continuity. It's a good time to think about what to bring forward and what to let go of, leave behind. As I look back on the many years that I've been studying and practicing in a different lineage prior to the time of coming into the Buddha Dharma formally, but altogether... I was born in 1940, and I would say I would started contemplating truth very soon after that. Uh, that sounds like a slightly grandiose claim, but it isn't, actually. It's accurate. Uh, I think from extremely early childhood, I was asking what and why, not so much about objects and phenomena, but about our minds and and about thinking and uh, and not I wish I'd been asking about speaking because I was I've always had a tendency to kind of blurt whatever is in my mind if I'd asked about speaking and not just thinking I probably would have been less offensive to many but I felt at an early age a very strong uh, resonance with an inner Questing is the word I would use, I guess. A, a wanting to understand why we do certain kinds of things and particularly things that cause me distress and that I couldn't comprehend. I couldn't comprehend certain kinds of behavior in myself and others, but of course, being human, particularly in others, I was looking at behavior I couldn't comprehend. And often the, the behavior that was hard to understand was the behavior of other children, why children were cruel to each other, for example. That was very confusing, and that's a phenomenon that we're all familiar with. What I, what I, didn't, see, uh, what I didn't see from the vantage point of my childhood was anything about the confusions created in the minds of a child by adult behavior. I just registered experience, just registered it, observed, and then kept on going. I wasn't asking about you know, why mother did this, or I don't think I even asked when my father died. Uh, I don't even think I asked why. I was only seven, so I think I understood already that everybody dies. 
But I don't think I asked why my father or anything like that. I don't think I was projecting a lot onto appearances. I think that came later as I got older. I think as a kid, I was really asking what and how more than why, I think. But what struck me as I was thinking about being together tonight, what struck me was that at the moment I'm in, and this is um, this is fairly personal, this first part of what I want to talk about is a little personal in terms of context, but then I want to link it to our our, our work and our, our endeavors and our commitments as spiritual practitioners on the path together. I'm at a point of sig- very significant life change about which I know very little. It doesn't have any identifiable contours or flavors or indicators. The only thing I'm aware of is that I will be moving to a new location at some point in the identifiable future. I mean, it's not like 10 years from now. It's fairly soon. And I know nothing about this. I don't know where I'm going or with whom. Um, I'm waiting for a, a... an attunement of some sort, some kind of connection to be made in the ethers, I guess. I'm not even sure how to talk about it, but there will come some kind of a signal and then there will be some kind of an opportunity and then there will be something that I'll do with that opportunity and uh, and with others. So it's curious and odd and it requires a very high level of non-grasping and, and trust to be in this place because I'm I'm not putting my thumb on the scale in any way. I'm not trying to shape it or or chase down an opportunity of some sort. I'm not going to look on Craigslist or something like that about where I might want to go. I'm not even thinking very much about where I might want to be because this is going to be the last phase of my life, basically. I don't know how many years I have left, but not, you know, however many years I have left, it's not very many years. I'm 81 in another week or so. And so it, it, clearly this is not, I'm not looking at a 30-year lease somewhere. So the predominant sense I have about this moment in my life and the kind of a kind of jumping off point that I'm approaching or present at the edge of, I have the sense that the next part is the part that I was born for. If, if that's something that means anything to any of you, I mean, some of you may have that sense about aspects of your life as well or things that you're doing, way, ways in which you know, we're working or interacting with people or forms of service that we've picked up in this lifetime and are carrying forth, that we may have a sense that this really is what we came to do, you know. And certainly um, the kind of work I do, I feel that way about, but this particular life phase that I'm in, the the next stage of it, I think everything else has been preparation for this stage that I'm entering. So the question of continuity is very apt and very pertinent at the moment. It's opposite that I'm looking at uh, inwardly, inwardly of, okay, what is, what is carrying me here? What am I bringing? What am I being carried by? Um, and uh, that's the, the tenor of the kind of questioning uh, that I've been engaging in. And I, my life has been characterized by radical and dramatic and constant change through all the years of my childhood and on up to now. Clearly, that tendency is or trend is not exhausted itself yet. But we are all in that process all the time. So I think the questions of at any moment of change, it hasn't always been conscious for me, but it is because of this particular event that we're in together. It's conscious for me now to think, what am I carrying forward Oh, and what is carrying me forward? Easy to think about, well, what shall I pack and what shall I leave behind? Um, easy to think that, not so easy to decide about it necessarily. But that doesn't even seem to be the question. It's more the question of really what is what threads am I continuing to weave with? What inquiry am I continuing to engage with? What intentions continue to animate me? So it's at that level that I've been, or in that in that kind of inward attention that I've been looking at this question of continuity. When I think about it for us as practitioners, three things initially came to mind just very quickly in terms of vows, commitments, and activity of body, speech, and mind, that, that these three areas for us as practitioners can characterize some of the ways in which we, we might think about 
a continuum of our life, uh, continuity of preoccupations or activities. But what's the animating continuity is what I'm interested in for myself. And I think uh, with people I work with, with students I, I have the pleasure to work with, I'm also always looking at that. What's the sense that one has of one's life purpose? It's surprising how many people have never really thought, what is the purpose of my lifetime? I mean, even people who are very active on the path, yeah, people I've known very well for many years, uh, sometimes register surprise when I ask, well, what is your sense of life purpose? What is your sense of what you're here for? The question itself is, has an implication in it that, of course, one has a life purpose. And also, if one has a life purpose and a life, one has some sense of uh, the moment that that life begins and the moment that it ends and what one might want to accomplish or experience or master or abandon during that phase. But there was a before this life and there is an after this life. And I'm particularly interested in what brings us all the way through, what's been with us or, or what we've been with all along before and how that comes uh, forth again in this lifetime and what we do with it and how we identify it, how we are, how we're picked by our purpose or how we recognize it again and, and then how we think about dying in connection with our purpose? Do we think, okay, well, now I have to accomplish this before I die, or is it really an open-ended process? I mean, everybody could have a very different kind of relationship to these kinds of questions, but I'm very struck by the spiritual path itself being a universal expression of continuity uh, with no assumption that there's only one lifetime in which to recognize that and and work with it and fulfill it. Um, that there is a, a process through time. Of course, that's our invention. We create that uh, conceptual uh, framework, but uh, we certainly experience our lives that way. And my guru speaks always of many lifetimes, pre prior lifetimes, because he teaches very strongly about karma. Uh, so he's always emphasizing the very great significance of how uh, the appearances of this lifetime are the fruit of past karma, both positive and negative. And it's it's still jolting me to have not the teachings on karma, those are no longer jolting me, but they're they're rigorous and I'm always struck by how lacking in rigor I am in relation to karma. But the conceptualization of many lifetimes, I think of our of what we describe as experiences in past lifetimes and so on. I think of it more as refractions of, uh, of light from a crystal, like the kinds of crystals that might hang in a window and light might hit a certain face of the crystal and that facet refracts a, 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 a you know a pristine blue and then there might be a little turning of the crystal and then the the pristine yellow flashes. I think of it more like that, that it's all happening all at once. Uh, but Garchan Rinpoche, my, uh, my lama, is very, very clear in talking about past lifetimes, even though he's equally clear in saying there are no sentient beings. There are no sentient beings. This is what we see because we have, uh, we have actually fixated on the concept of self and other because of the indwelling in ignorance that arises with us as we come into consciousness. And that, that I understand, that process, although that sounds a little grandiose to say I understand it. But uh, the part about there being actual lifetimes that we experience before this one and then ones before that and before that is central to the teachings on karma. I didn't expect to be talking about this tonight. I'm, I'm not going to go much a lot further with it, but... It's central to the teachings on karma in the Buddha Dharma. And um, so if I'm still confused or uncertain about there being uh, prior lifetimes that this consciousness has, has lived in or the consciousness uh, identified with that lifetime has lived and incurred karma during that lifetime that is now coming forth, there's a thread of continuity that is one that we need to take extreme responsibility for. Uh, 
So uh, I'm, I'm presently engaged in linking my sense of karmic responsibility in this identifiable present lifetime with uh, an agreement to think in terms of prior lifetimes and uh, subsequent lifetimes. I, I'm wanting to make that linkage so I have a much clearer understanding of these profound teachings about karma. But what I want to look at, at at this moment is not so much that. It's more in this lifetime, uh, as practitioners, we make certain commitments. We take certain vows. We make certain commitments. And then we also engage in certain actions of body speech. And most particularly of mind is where continuity comes into play. And I think that the the, the richness of what happened in my thinking and my experiencing was to see... Um, uh, some of the uh, specifics of how uh, spiritual commitments um, engaged me in creating continuities in this lifetime. And the first was uh, the first thing that I uh, recognized was um, how how I was taught when I first entered the stream of the Buddha Dharma, I had never meditated in my life, and the first meditation instruction that I ever received was in shamatha practice, calm abiding practice, which is common. And um, so there was posture, gaze, and breathing to pay attention to. And the clear instruction was to do nothing at that time, basically, to do nothing except to pay attention to posture, gaze, and breathing. And then at the ending of the instruction, I was in retreat for a couple of days, and then the, there was instruction at the end of the retreat for how to carry the practice forward. And it was basically do the same nothing you've been doing, but doing it do it every day at the same time if possible. So I thought that was a, a really good framework to give somebody. Uh, not not so easy to carry out after the first ten days. I was pretty pretty hot for the first ten days, and then things started to sort of cool off. The cushion didn't feel quite right, and for some reason there wasn't the same verve in my practice. And and uh, but posture, gaze, and uh, breathing, of course, are always with us. So those reminders of continuity remain with me. When I would sit down casually, I would then find myself sitting correctly again. Right? It just it kind of it it became something. It wasn't really a mantra, but it became in a field of awareness in my mind, or a, a kind of a. Yeah, a, a, a mental awareness that there was a, a choiceful way to sit, and then there was the casual, uh, not choiceful, but just habitual way to sit, and that they were very, very different. And that the choiceful way to sit, erect and sitting on your two sits bones, uh, actually was a, was a way to awaken. And I very quickly experienced that that was the case, and it seemed very simple, very simple, very direct. And there some continuity was established that has never left me. And it uh, effortlessly uh, stays with me. I effortlessly move forward onto my sits bones. Um, and, and except now I can't any longer sit on the floor, which is the greatest loss of my spiritual path that I've experienced. You know, the, the path is subtractive, not additive. And the hardest thing for me to let go of was the ability to sit on the cushion. You know, like a meditator, sitting in a chair is really different. Uh, but the sit bones are still the sit bones. So, so in case you haven't found yours, poke around for a while until you find them at the two pointy bones at the base. And that's where you need to be sitting. On the sits bones. So the point that was being made to me in giving me the instruction was that to counter the habitual unconscious ways of sitting and, and breathing and gazing, uh, one uh, consciously adopts a, a different framework, different points of <laughs> sits bones and different points of practice. And then by uh, conscious repetition, uh, one establishes one of the people in the room with me right now, by the way, has just moved forward onto her sits bones. <laughs> Out of the corner of my eye. See, very good. <laughs> so the establishment of continuity by adopting uh, conscious uh, ways of doing that which is 
always done unconsciously day in and day out. Establishing that continuity also then projected into the future uh, with the uh, um, the real invitation and actual exhortation by this uh, rather strict uh, teacher uh, that, that taught me how the first meditation instruction that I ever received, which was the best thing is to establish a time of day that you will sit and how long that session will be, and to do that every day in that way. And I did that also with verve and enthusiasm for a while and then flagged. And, of course, I bring myself back to that from time to time, but I don't practice in quite the same way anymore. But um, that was, again, uh, to establish continuity of practice. But the point there uh, uh, learned only over some years of practice, as I'm sure all of you are very well familiar with. The point there is we're not establishing a continuity of practice just to have a continuity of practice. We're, we're seeking to establish and practicing to establish a continuity of mind. We might call it practice mind at some point, but the continuity of mind we're looking for is the mind that's awake and aware, uh, not just alive not just alive, but awake and aware. The continuity of consciousness, of of regular, ordinary, duality-based thinking, uh, that continuity uh, is well-established by lifetimes and lifetimes of uh, of ignorance, basically, and, uh, you know, not not necessarily ignorance in in the sense of, uh, gee, your mom didn't bring you up right, but ignorance in the original sense that one does not understand the nature of reality and therefore is not living uh, awake in the nature of reality as it is, from which comes every form of suffering because of self-grasping, because of the uh, our grasping to the illusion that there is actually solid existence in ourselves or in anything else. So the, the mind of practice that eventually... Uh, allows us to awaken to a, a quality of, of active awareness, that's the mind of practice that we want to establish. That can actually then accompany us through the portal of death into uh, future lifetimes. Uh, it, we have to awaken in each lifetime freshly because it has to be in the moment. But uh, once awareness is established and there is continuity of awareness, that's a very different way of living one's life than just continuity of consciousness. Um, And sometime we can talk more about that, maybe even tonight, but I want to move on uh, momentarily to another way in which continuity was being introduced to my practice by my kind teachers um, in the Buddha Dharma tradition that I'm in is the Tibetan tradition. And there we do a lot of mantra recitation when we're doing practice on deities. And that was a very powerful method for teaching uh, maintenance of practice mind, continuity of practice mind. And, and even the image of the mala is a powerful image of continuity. It, Around and around you go, and you stop at the guru bead and turn around and go the other direction, and then you, again, like this, but over and over again. And the continuity of Sangha, the, that third jewel of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, is often illustrated by, the, uh, by pointing to the mala and how it's shaped and what its significance is, the significance of its uh, formation is. And in the Tibetan tradition, the, the, the large bead at, the, at, at a certain place on the mala is called the guru, guru bead. And one never passes over it the same way you don't step over your guru. You stop there and then you go around again in the next direction. But the maintenance of a mind of clear attention and awareness through mantra recitation was a, a real revelation to me. That was something that was completely new to me. I'd, I'd never experienced the way in which the mind is trained to the energy of a certain awareness of being and quality as when working with deity practice through mantra recitation, which of course is reciting the name of the deity. And all of you are very familiar with this, I know, particularly in the home community. The careful enunciation of each syllable, the attention to recitation, sometimes it's loud because certain practices, but 
but the only requirement that I was ever given was that it had to engage voice as well as body and, and uh, mind. Uh, it had to be body, speech, and mind, 100% given to the recitation. And the voice needed to be, if you didn't want to do it out loud, it needed to be just loud enough for the collarbone to hear it. And that allowed an inward attention uh, undistracted by sound, uh, but a very clear, a very clear commitment to being 100% present, body, speech, and mind. And the continuity of mala practice, of mantra practice, for me, it was breathtaking and uh, it still is. It, it, it still is, to me, a joy and a profound, really wondrous thing that one can uh, sit still, recite mantra, go within, you know, engage the inward attention, recite mantra on the mala with 100% attention, and uh, it is transformational. I mean, one's working with deity qualities and so on, but it's transformational, a form of dedication and uh, a form of generosity practice that takes one over. And the continuity of attention generated in that has been really life-changing for me. And I'm sure for those of you who do mantra, you're aware. Often you're just doing ordinary activities, and then suddenly you realize you're always also doing mantra, and you've been doing it for three hours. You know, it's, it's with you. It's moving with you. It's uh, uh, not something that you're having to energize or create. It's just a part of who you are now. It's a part of your consciousness, a part of your awareness. Uh, so that was extraordinarily significant to me in the early days of my, uh, of my practice in this tradition. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the, the real continuity that I started to experience as a practitioner was continuity of mind. Practice mind, as I've spoken of with mantra recitation, and, and sits mind, as I've spoken about posture. And, but the continuity of mind that has the most uh, power for me and that has changed my life most significantly as a practitioner is the generation of uh, altruistic intention, the bodhisattva intention. Every prayer that we recite in my tradition speaks of for the benefit of all sentient beings. My first reaction when I heard that was, what does sentient mean? <laughs> I didn't know. What, what does that mean? I still don't exactly know why we say all sentient beings. I don't myself use that formulation. I say for all beings, um, because there is some controversy, even in the in the Buddha Dharma realms of high purity, there's some differences of opinion about um, whether certain things like rocks and trees are, are, are considered beings in the sense of sentient beings. But some experiences have certainly shown me that they are. It's not a question in my mind at all. It's a settled issue. And so I speak of all beings. But the prayer uh, by which, the, the intention by which we dedicate all of our activities for the benefit of all beings comes off the lips so easily. And it's so automatic in the prayer that's very different from it being the intention, the motivation, and the aspiration that has taken you over and that becomes the continuity of your days and nights, your breathing, your thinking, uh, all of your activities, and all of your, your thoughts, and all of the intentions that you generate consciously for this or that activity. That being taken over by the altruistic intention establishes a continuity that is unbreakable lifetime to lifetime. Uh, and so although I say I have some questions about lifetimes it being uh, you know, a reification possibly, at least for me, in, in ways of thinking, there's no question for me that um, when I first met the word bodhisattva, I was in my 40s. I'd never heard the word bodhisattva. And I... Um, was being offered the opportunity to take the bodhisattva vow. Uh, a, a lama had come to the sangha that I was a member of, a different tradition, and he was offering the bodhisattva vow. And I, I, really, I'd never heard the word before. I mean, I don't know how in the world I'd never heard the word before, but I never had. I, I, if, you, if you'd asked me, I would have said, I have no idea what it means. But when I was offered the opportunity to take the vow, I, I apologize. I'm going to use a, a, a you know a word that 
really I use in ordinary life, but I try not to use in this kind of a situation. My first reaction was, oh, shit, not again. You know, it was really, that was really what my, Patty's laughing, you've heard me say this before. This, it was shocking to me that I was, again, this is what was shocking. Not that I remembered, but it was shocking that I was again being dragged, kicking and screaming to the threshold of 100% commitment to living, working, breathing, lifetime to lifetime to liberate all beings from suffering. I was just, but of course I did it. I mean, (laughs) of course I took the vow. I mean, I knew from hearing what I'd said out loud, I understood something that I hadn't even ever conceptualized, never heard of before. So I realized, well, I've done it before, obviously, because here I am. And obviously I'm going to be keeping on doing it. So I'm clearly going to do it again right now. So bring it on, basically. And that that was many years ago. I'm that was forty years ago that that happened. Now it won't be allergies, but if tears come, it's because this is so stirring to me to say this and to know that it's accurate, that it's it's authentic, it's true. I'm not making it up. That it has become. I'm inseparable from this vow. There are times that I still behave like an idiot, and you know, in total self regard, and so on, but. I'm not separable from the vow and from the commitment that it entails for me. It has absolute dominating continuity in my life. And I know that it has in prior lifetimes as well, but this one seems possibly definitive. Um, I think maybe definitive in some way, just has that kind of ring to it. So if I think of continuity of mind, I think for us in terms of consciousness that we are all as practitioners on the path seeking to generate, to really cultivate a mind of practice, a mind of uh, devotion uh, and dedication. I think at a certain point, I know I'm not the only one in this uh, in this group of people who has been taken over by the intention, the spiritual intention that one at one point consciously was cultivating, uh, that one is now inseparable from it in the same way I'm speaking about the, the bodhisattva commitment. You know, it's called different things in different traditions, but to be taken over by the spiritual um, intention, by the spiritual aspiration, to be taken over by that is, I, I would say for myself as a practitioner, is what opens the door to the ultimate continuity, which is the recognition of the continuity of of union, the union of absolute and relative. And that is, I think, what we would call ultimate realization, that to, to fully uh, recognize and enter and be abandoned to that union and it the continuum of majesty and emptiness that it shows us that it points us to and reveals to us and is revealed through through our presence in the world it's revealed also to others i i was going to tell you stories about my childhood and <laughs> i think i'm not going to even go there <laughs> all right um but I, I yes, I'll go there for a minute. Um, I, I was curious uh, when I saw that what I was wanting to talk about took me back to the early years of my childhood. I was kind of curious about how it was that I had from such an early age what we I could only now call in retrospect recognizing it as a, a spiritual purpose. And I recognized something of that. In my, in my early childhood, I had a an an, in, uh, an intrinsic. It seems I think we all do, but I resonated somehow in very early years to an intrinsic and completely um, entirely personal sense of certainty that truth is that there is that there is truth, truth capital T. Not just that people tell the truth sometimes and so on, and sometimes you trip over truth, etc. But there is truth, capital T. 
that truth is. And for a, a long time, I called that God. I used. Uh, I was brought up as a Christian, and I used that language. Um, and I, I thought God and truth, same thing, probably. There was some kind of an inner resonance with an inner certainty about truth, that there was truth, and that I wanted only. Uh, it sounds funny to say of a little kid, but I wanted only that. That was all I wanted. Uh, I mean, you know, I wanted the chocolate cake too, but that, you know, I, but all I wanted was was that was to, was truth. I, that was all I wanted, and it didn't make me an easy friend. Uh, it didn't make me um, a happy child. It didn't make me a well-behaved daughter. <laughs> it didn't didn't bring me any virtues at all that I can think of when I look back. I was impatient. I was thirsty for this. I was I was kind of hard on the world about it. And I was kind of hard on myself about it because I couldn't find it. I thought it, I thought I was separate from it. And it was agony. I'm sorry to speak of experiencing spiritual agony as a child, but I did uh, in, in some measure. Um, so there wasn't there wasn't a sense of comfort and ease because there because I sensed that truth is, but there was definitely continuity. Uh, I never ever wavered in that certainty, and uh, I, it, it's sort of astonishing to look back and recognize that, but. But it's true. I never wavered in the certainty that truth is. And so through everything that came on the path, a, a lot of suffering on the path and, uh, and a lot of suffering in the life and um, a lot of very serious illness and, and, you know, all the stuff that can happen happened. I didn't have any spiritual explanations for anything, but I, I had that bell ringing in my awareness that truth is, so I never felt complete because I felt separate from truth. And there, so th there was the motivation for path, the motivation for practice that was not altruistically oriented, uh, the motivation for a kind of hard-heartedness towards myself as a practitioner, which always, of course, hard-heartedness towards oneself manifests as hard-heartedness with others as well. Um, that's inevitable, however kind you might try to be, uh, in my case at least. So I, it was tough. I was tough on the teacher. The teacher was tough on me, the first teacher that I, I met when I was 40. Um, and uh, she, was a, she was a great bodhisattva and get, poured everything into me. And I, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take some of it. I, I, it wasn't it, I, my my karmic path was the Buddha Dharma. I eventually found that and moved in that direction, but I was a rebellious and also uh, with rebelliousness sometimes comes also this kind of avid wanting to devour that which is given, but a rebelliousness about doing it in the way that you're being told to do it. So I was a rebellious student at the same time. I wanted to be the best student, etc. All this kind of drama that can come up with somebody who's intransigent and and uh, and very thirsty, spiritually really thirsty. And I stayed in that sangha and with that teacher for 20 years and then had the great good fortune of actually being kicked out, which was a, a great blessing uh, for the sangha and for me and for the teacher. It was, it, it, I had nothing but enthusiasm for that. It was a real gratitude. And then... Quite a few years uh, later, I gave birth to a book based on those 20 years and the 10 years that followed in which I was trying to understand what had happened. It was very confusing. I was really authentic in my spiritual intention, but it was really a painful and, and disturbing process that I'd been through. And through keeping of journals, I managed to stay in touch with what the process was for me. And I had, I had 20, ultimately 30 years of journals to work with and wrote a memoir based on them. Not because I wanted to write a memoir, but because I needed to understand what had happened to me on the path for 30 years. 
that's a lot of years. And I needed to understand it. So I looked very closely into these journals. And what I saw was this. And I think this is the reason that the word continuity came up when uh, I, I was asked what I wanted to talk about. What I saw was that no matter what had happened in those 30 years of practice or not practice, rebellion or uh, adherence, whatever had happened, uh, altruism or selfishness, the certainty that truth is never wavered, never left me. And it also revealed to me that I had known from the beginning what I found out by writing the book, which is that there is no separability of self from truth, that the union is intrinsic, inborn, indwelling, unbreakable. The union is the fact of our uh, being and our existence, that we are one with truth, inalienably one, inseparably one, and that I had come in somehow knowing this and then become separated from that knowing, but the continuity of, of unwavering knowledge of truth existing was enough to keep me going. And that was the continuity that kept me going, even though, you know, there was a lot of confusion. That never wavered. This is the book, by the way. It's called Light Years, a Spiritual Memoir. That's me at, at 45. This is me at 81. <laughs> continuity. <laughs> Slightly dripping. In the preface to that book, I wrote down... It, it went into the preface, but it was in the journal, uh, in, in one of the later journals, I think. I think I wrote that studying the journals, studying those 30 years, and going through the journals had shown me what that continuity had been and what it had revealed to me in the process. I wrote, we already are what we aspire to become. We are templates of truth to be laid bare by love. I was stunned to read that after it appeared on the page. It showed me that I had known from the beginning what I found out at the end, and that I think that this is true for all of us. Uh, this is not unique to me. I think if, if we all can go back you know, and unwind the film, uh, we'll find that the knowing that we come to uh, through all of our travails uh, on the path, that knowing has never been absent from us. We are rediscovering that. And the gratitude I feel for that rediscovery is profound and immense. It is what, uh, it's why I agree to sit in the chair that they call the teacher chair. It's, it's the only reason that I would agree to do that, really. Well, besides the fact that the guru insisted, but, you know, I could have still gotten out from under it if I'd wanted to. But if I didn't know that this was true for us, for all of us, I wouldn't have any faith in the teachings, even of the tradition that I am wed to. Because the spiritual the process of spiritual maturation is not a process of adding something. It's a process of sweeping away what prevents us from seeing what we already are. Yes? So uh, the, to be shown that through the grittiness of, you know, 30, 40 years of my own personal experience on the path, to be shown it directly through my own experience means that it's it's really on my pulse all the time it's it's in fact there are times when this is what keeps me going uh to to remember this that we already are what we aspire to become we are templates of truth to be laid bare by love and the path is the laying bare that that's what the work of the path is it's the laying bare that template that we are of truth pure pristine uh, unborn, undying, uh, no change in the template. The template is of truth primordial. And then the continuity of lifetime to lifetime, which, as I said, I'm studying with a new kind of uh, strictness at the moment, is very uh, interesting to me. But there's no question 
just also from personal, direct personal experience of what I remember of prior experiences a little and what I what I experience in working with people who are dying and who, who and working most particularly of working with people after they've died is the that the continuity of intention that we can create and energize during our lifetime intentionally on the path and I speak specifically of the bodhisattva intention, there's no lapse. Even if we go through in the Tibetan uh, tradition, what we call the bardos of uh, after uh, de- death experiences and have to take another lifetime, that bodhisattva, that bodhisattva intention will pick us again. We, we, we will follow that again, lifetime to lifetime, as you saw in my, my oh shit transmission. <laughs> confronted with the possibility of the vow. I want everyone who can hear this to have confidence that that our spiritual intention, our highest spiritual aspiration follows. It it, it follows with us. We, We don't lose that when we die. I have certainty about that. And I have tremendous gratitude for that. Because it's not easy, this part where we're in bodies. This is really difficult. I see the pain, you know, not just through looking at my own life, but everybody I work with and everybody I know uh, is uh, experiencing the pain of being in limitation, being uh, in, in a form you know, we're just crashing around doing the best we can. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's painful. It's a painful process. It's also immense in beauty. But this last year, we certainly have seen uh, beauty arising in pandemia, but we've also seen indescribable suffering and tragedy. And th- those two are like this. They're same. They're same. They're, they're rainbow qualities of human experiencing in form, and, and yet we experience them as incredible suffering. The certainty that is in your life as the continuity that you're aware of, I just want you to praise that certainty and trust it and uh, have confidence in it. Uh, and I mean, each of us, it may be different. It may, may, the words might be so different that I'm using from the words you, you would use about yourselves, but there is some certainty in you about your relationship to the ultimate, your relationship to the absent, or you would not still be on the path. And in this lifetime, everybody who's here, right here, right now, is definitely still on the path with beautiful, noble hearts and intentions of love and compassion that are huge and powerful in your lives and in the lives of those you're associated with. So the kind of certainty that I'm speaking to when I say I never wavered for a minute in the certainty that truth is, the only doubt I ever had was doubt in myself. I never doubted that truth is. That bedrock is with you somewhere, and it is the, the source of the continuity in your spiritual life. I'm certain of that. I just, you know, there's a whole lot more. Maybe I'll write something more at some point and <laughs> maybe maybe I'll say some of what I also wanted to speak to tonight. But I really, if anything of what I'm talking about is resonant for any of you, I just would so much want to hear. I'd like to hear from each of you. Anybody who wants to speak, please do. Thank you for sharing the parts of your life and your perspective growing up, I was especially taken with your vow. My question is, in in your vow of sticking with all beings and all attain unity, do you ever undergo times when you just want to take off on your own and not not adhere to that vow, or is it just so? Are you so bound? to that and it's it's just you and it's just a part of you that you can't conceive of doing that i'm really glad you're posing that it's very very significant to hear the question i haven't asked myself that for a long time but 
no, I am not shakable now, although my behavior is not always good. Right? I'm not always faithful to the to the vow in my behavior. In my mind, I'm inseparable from it now. But that was not true for a long time. I did terrible things. I'm speaking truth. I did I did some terrible things in order to avoid coming to the point where I was fully committed to that vow. I I deviated. I, I was deviant in order not to hew to the vow, even though I had taken it formally. I mean, it is a, the Bodhisattva vow is a formal vow that one can take. I went through great contortions to avoid the ultimate commitment that is the vow then becoming who one is, not what one is committed to doing. So, so observe your behavior, <laughs> right? And, and I observed mine, and I saw what I was doing. I remember at one point saying, this is the point at which I need to make the commitment absolute to the bodhisattva path, and I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. Kicking and screaming, you're dragging me to this point, and I don't want to do it. I wasn't saying that to the teacher. I was saying that to, to the bodhisattva vow within me that wanted to, again, take my life, right? So I did some very negative things in order to prevent that takeover. The wholehearted commitment, in other words, that would allow me to be taken up in the vow. So behavior is still, you know, questionable at times, no question, you know, and the mind can have vagaries, but the the commitment at this level, the level of the of the heart mind is is there. I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm glad to be able to say that. It's not like overnight necessarily. We practice. We practice. We're sweeping away that grasping for self. Right? Little by little by little, we're sweeping that away so that this is able to emerge. Thank you really for asking that question, Yelly. And the awful th- some of the awful things are in the book, by the way. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really true. <laughs> Would you please uh, talk about how you see meditation or sitting tying in with continuity of spiritual intention oh well because we want to be uh able to see things as they are if we're looking for an authentic relationship with truth and with love the two are inseparable the stuff we need to clear away is all the stuff that prevents us from seeing that authentic nature in ourselves and others and in all of reality And the mind that we are normally inhabiting is the mind of consciousness, where it's personality-based. It's based in the uh, attribution of self, the thought that there's a self, therefore there's a thought, you know, that there's an other. In other words, dualistic mind is the consciousness mind. And as long as we're in consciousness mind, we are not really capable of being fully present in the world as a person who sees things as they are. So awareness is another word for wisdom mind or wisdom. That is accomplished through practice, the sweeping away part, but then there's the sitting still part. It doesn't have to be sitting. I mean, there are many practices that are movement practices as well, so I'm not going to talk about forms of meditative practice, but some form of inward attention I would use that rather than the word meditation because there's so many different kinds of meditation, but a form of inward attention that allows you to actually see your mind, see your mind's condition as it is, everything moving in the mind, and then that same clear awareness that sees the condition of the mind is the same clear awareness that sees the nature of the mind, which is clear awareness itself. And that is accomplished through, at least in my limited, very limited experience, it's accomplished through discipline. But there also are moments when one just spontaneously recognizes the true nature of mind, because it's always there. I mean, it's clear awareness 
that that sees the true nature of the mind is the same clear awareness that sees this microphone in front of me. It's not a different awareness, but the inward attention is what is, allows us to see uh, in, in a different way the mind itself, its operations, its functions, its you know lollygagging around, and also the stillness of mind that is not moving, that is actually uh, awareness mind the unborn mind, the original primordial nature. If what I'm understanding is that you're saying that meditation or sitting moves us into that awareness, it can move us into that awareness. I don't think it does necessarily. I think that it's a way of slowing down enough that that, that awareness has a chance to be seen. I don't think it moves us into that awareness necessarily. In my experience, the disciplines don't necessarily move me into that awareness, but they silence some of the static. They make it possible for me to look within. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about looking within. When we're looking around at objects and people and so on, there's a grasping energy in the looking. We're looking with dual mind, dualistic mind. Looking within, that is a non-dual way of looking. That's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. When you talk about how we are inseparable from truth and the practice of looking within and being able to see things as they are, to see reality as it is, and I can speak for myself, of course, but it seems that there are so many ways in which we do not act in alignment with truth or with reality as it is, even if we are inseparable from the truth, and even if we have had Mm -hmm. profound glimpses into the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a brokenheartedness about that, in my experience, and I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if uh, there's something you can say about that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) The brokenheartedness. It's so tender to think of that. Here's where um, the teachings of karma help me. There's a a profound, I would say, radical acceptance that I sometimes have when I recognize that the seeds of my confusion were laid down by the confused me in a prior time, whether it's a prior moment or a prior lifetime that the present confusion has its roots in a seed that I've planted. And the quality of trust or faith in that karmic uh, relationship to current conditions, it's freed me considerably, not completely, but considerably from being a helpless witness to my own folly and wrongheadedness and cruelty and selfishness and so on. Because of studying karma, I more have a sense of gratitude for seeing the results of prior karma and recognizing that the suffering and even a mild state of confusion is a form of suffering, that that the suffering of seeing my confusion in the present is the process of purification of that karma. So I'm no longer judgmental with myself the way I used to be. To recognize that out of my own confusion, in a past moment, I have laid down a seed of cause that eventuates in confusion of some sort in the present moment, the suffering of seeing that, when I, when I can recognize that it's a, a kind of confusion or behavior or reaction that I don't feel happy about or that's actually very painful for me or whatever, that suffering is the purification of that karmic cause. And so recognizing that and understanding that now, I have a sense of welcoming experience even uh, when it is really difficult and painful. There's a level at which I am welcoming it. 
this has come home to me most particularly because my Lama has taught me very clearly, personally and also generally to all, that uh, we ought to be grateful for every sign that our karmic propensities are being purified. And the fastest route to that is the route of physical suffering and illness. Illness, accidents, torment, uh, but physical illness is one of the fast tracks to karmic purification. It's really helpful to remember that. Once you experience your karmic um, consequences, so to speak, does that then karmic negativity go away? Does that, that end that cycle, right? That karmic piece is then closed and you don't have to experience that piece of karmic, uh, you know, karmic um, action anymore, that suffering anymore. That closes that piece of karma down. Well, if I understand you correctly, I think you're asking, is that karmic seed then purified and you don't get to experience that again? Is that what you're asking? Well, you probably didn't plant it once. Right. True. True. Thank you. So, but but that in itself, recognizing that in itself is kind of a relief. Oh my, here it comes again. Right? You begin to recognize the patterning, yes? But to recognize that the suffering, whether it's huge or tiny, that is the purification. There's a huge lesson in that that's very relieving. Very relieving. Yeah. That's a great question. I'm trying to discern this happiness and gratitude I'm feeling in the midst of your sharing. And we've dedicated ourselves to this great vow, this dharma, this love of God. And though I may not continue in this physical form much longer, I have this deep wish that the honey that we have all gathered together will continue into the future. Yes, the honey that we've gathered is the honey from the... Or should, we, should we go on with this analogy? <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. It's very sweet. <laughs> well, so I'm so happy that I heard these words, actually, because, yes, they're very sweet. But I don't think we have to worry about it continuing into the future because this sweetness is the nectar of the unborn and undying. This, this is the nectar of union, not of causation. And so the actual sweetness of recognizing the relationship with love-truth or truth-love is inborn, is indwelling for us, that, that's an, that that is our our own nature, then we don't have to think about, well, will the sweetness of that recognition come in the future? It never wasn't. It's always been here with us. And the only thing that wavers is our recognition of what is. That's what the wavering is. It's our recognition, our seeing it, our recognizing it and, and knowing what we're seeing. The sweetness itself and the hive in which it's being uh, formed and uh, the worker bees, uh, you know, that's us on the path. But the sweetness is just waiting there for us to taste it. We don't have, to, we're not creating that sweetness. We're tasting it. And you spoke of your vow at this time being particularly definitive. Yeah, yeah. It's just a knowing that I, I sense that it is, it's definitive. That doesn't mean that I won't go through the same process again of needing to take the vow again and coming again to understand that it's definitive. My, my first teacher, I once said to her, after a moment of great insight, I, at one point I said, oh, what a relief. And she said, yes. And then I, th I heard the tone there and I got suspicious. I said, what do you mean? Yes. <laughs> she said, it has to be every time. I think I mentioned this, that one awakens, uh, that one becomes a Buddha every time. It always has to be fresh. Even if you attain Buddhahood, well, maybe not when you attain Buddhahood. All of this is rumor, of course, you know. Right? So, but if you have great attainment, you know, great realization, awakening, true awakening, even though it's not completely stable and you've attained entire, you know, actual Buddhahood, your awakening will have to be met again in the next lifetime. You have to go through it again. But then I groaned. I groaned. I said, oh, no, I can't imagine having to go through it again. She said, 
it gets quicker. So I'm giving you the, the words that my spiritual grandmother gave me. She said, it gets quicker. Since you said it happens quicker, since you brought that up, I'm wondering, after Satori or after a, a Buddha-type experience, what is one supposed to do? And please don't say chop wood, carry water. I wish that I had asked that question or had somebody to ask that question of when I had significant experience. What you do then is stabilize it through practice and through activity. In other words, you don't keep seeking to have the experience again and again. That's the surest way not to have it again and again, right? Because that's a kind of grasping and it's focused on self. But what I would advise anybody with all my heart, because I had to live through this for a very long time in order to understand this, to live forth in the world what that experience has shown you. So through practice and through your activities of body, speech, and mind, live forth what you've been shown. Thank you. I have been waiting years for that answer. Yeah, I didn't get that answer. Nobody ever told me that. I didn't have anybody to tell me that. I had to find it. It it was a lot of suffering for me because I thought I failed, that I'd been shown directly, I'd I'd seen directly, and that I couldn't continue to stay in that state all the time. And I still can't stay in that state all the time. I'm lucky if I get a glimpse, you know. But a glimpse is just a glimpse by nature. It's temporary, fleeting. But what that glimpse can show you is the whole thing. And once you've seen the whole thing, then that's what you live. And in the Native traditions, some of the Native traditions, there is a practice called the vision quest. You probably have heard that term. And so you you go up in the mountain or you go to your secluded place and for four days or however long in that culture you're, you're doing it, you're on a quest to receive insight, to receive direction, to receive revelation. You know, and one, uh, one of the teachers that I read at one point, I had never met this teacher, but one of the teachers that I read, and I can't remember who it was, he recounted how when he came down from the mountain after his vision quest, he went to his teacher, which is what you're supposed to do with your vision. You go to the teacher and you, and you tell what you've seen. And then teacher just said, now make it real. And what that meant was exactly what I've said, but they had a formality in, of how they did it. He then had to gather the community to enact on the ground, feet on the ground and voices in the air and, you know, hands on shoulders the actual vision that he'd had. Wow. Yeah. So, but the make it real is the same thing as stabilize it by live it forth. Bring it into the world. We're not, we maybe like to see reality directly and then sit there and stare. It doesn't really work like that. We're in the world. Thank you. You're welcome. Bless you for bringing that question to us. I've had this conversation with many it's a tough point if one doesn't have somebody to tell you. You don't know what to do. Some people just go and whirl. Well, if we're done, I just thank you with all my heart for being here. I've been very much in process with this, very much, partly because of the cliff edge that I'm on. And so as I was speaking tonight, I was really, really needing to look within for what it was I wanted to communicate and how to speak. And the quality of your response is just beautiful. I'm very appreciative. Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you.